Thank you very much, Irene, for ministering in music. We'll pray together and then consider God's word. Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness, the opportunity to be together this morning, even though some may not be here that would normally be here because of the weather. But as we interact with your word, we want to be attentive to it, living in light of it. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Difficult, hard to understand, why try? Many views are some words that may describe First Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22. As I've read on this passage, it's probably one of the more difficult passages in Scripture to understand. And there tends to be a host of explanations and views that have been presented over the years. We'll read the passage together, starting with verse 13 of 1 Peter 3, and then we'll go from there in terms of considering the passage. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven, or gone into heaven, And it's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. As we discuss this passage, I'm not claiming that I have it 100% correct in my interpretation and explanation. But we will consider the passage, try to make sense of it in its context, and keep in mind that Peter is writing Two people are experiencing persecution because of their obedience to the Lord. The persecution was not coming from government, but from maybe a neighbor, a family member, and so on. And Peter places a strong emphasis upon the identity of who the believers are. They are in Christ. They have an inheritance, a redemption. They're living stones or a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people belonging to God. In verse 13, he raised the question, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? That's in light of what he says in verses 10 through 12, that God is looking out for believers. But in verse 14, he says, even if someone is going to harm you or you should suffer, you're blessed, you know, in what you're doing. So he encourages them in 15, set apart Christ as Lord. When someone asks why you have hope and live the way you do, be ready to give an answer and doing that with a clear conscience. And then in 17, he says, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And then he goes into 18 through 22. There's three views of verses 18 through 22. One of the views is that Christ, during the interval between his crucifixion and resurrection, went to the realm of the dead and preached to Noah's contemporaries. That's one view. A second view is the pre-existent Christ is in view as preaching in the time of Noah to Noah's sinful generation. You know, Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, would have preached during the days of Noah. A third view is that Christ proclaimed to the disobedient spirits, fallen angels, his victory on the cross. The proclamation took place during the three days in a descent into hell or during his ascension. So those are some of the views of the passage. And I'll tell you where I am as we begin. I would go with the third view in the sense that uh, Christ proclaimed his victory. Not that he went to hell, but it was during his ascension that that would have been done. And we'll explain as we go along. And as we think about this passage, the early Christians lived in a society that really believed in the existence of spiritual powers, both good and evil. Obviously, I think the New Testament shares that belief. It was entirely natural, therefore, for Peter to perceive that the persecution of the Christians as motivated not merely by the malice of pagan masters, neighbors and rulers, but by demonic forces behind them. Was it not Satan that entered into Judas as Judas made preparations to betray Jesus? Didn't Jesus consider Satan being behind Peter's rebuke of Jesus as he spoke of going to the cross in Mark eight thirty-one through chapter 9 and verse 1? And when natural disasters hit, In the time of Jesus, they were all the more likely to believe that behind their suffering of natural disasters lay the influence of opposing demonic powers. Demonic-initiated persecution raised the question of the power of God to give his people the upper hand. One type of answer to the whole problem might well have been to deny the existence of such beings. That way was not open to the New Testament writers. The existence of Satan and other evil powers was taken for granted by both Jesus and his followers. I think this is vital to understand persecution of believers in Christ. In 21st 
Central America, we're prone to step back and say, well, we don't give too much credit to Satan and to other evil powers. But are we willing to consider that evil spirits are involved in modern-day persecution in other countries and in various forms in our own country? And Peter emphasizes Christ in chapter 1, 18 through 23. Value Christ's redemption in chapter 2, 22 through 25. It highlights the conquering power of Christ's resurrection and ascension. And in the passage we're considering now, it highlights Christ's payment for sin and the results. Angels, authorities, and powers are in submission to him. So think about the people to whom he is writing. They're undergoing persecution. They would have seen evil forces behind the persecution. And Peter says, You have victory in Christ. Although it is the problem of nature of evil powers which strikes the attention of the reader, we must remember that Peter's main purpose in this section is to encourage believers to face persecution fearlessly and positively by showing them the significance of Jesus Christ. Yes, there may be persecution. Yes, there may be demonic forces behind the persecution. But Christ and what he has done is very, very significant. He points out that their situation is like that of Jesus, who also had to suffer for having done good. But although it may seem that he is presenting Jesus as an example to follow, in fact, I think he's presenting them as much more. To encourage believers... To encourage his hearers to link the resurrection and ascension of Jesus with victory over the powers of evil. I think also Peter is seeking to communicate to encourage believers to link their suffering for doing good with Christ's suffering and obeying his Father. Christ suffered in obeying his Father. You're suffering as you obey. God. But keep in mind that your suffering is evidence that you're on the right side when it comes to future judgment. He also writes to encourage believers that Christ's suffering was not defeat, but victory over angels authorities and powers. So their suffering is not defeat. That should be not their offering, but their suffering is not defeat. Now with those thoughts in mind, Peter has encouraged the people to whom he is writing not to fear when persecution comes. And he said in verse 17, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He had also stated before that, if you suffer, you're blessed. And then in verse 18, he says, for. For in verse 18 ties 
verse 18 to verses 13 through 17. A parallel is being drawn between what Peter's hearers are experiencing and what Christ experienced. Peter is saying, you're suffering for doing good in obedience to God, just as Christ suffered in obeying his Father. He's drawing a parallel. You suffered for doing obeying God. Christ suffered for obeying God. And we know that Christ's suffering had a much different impact. And that is spelled out for Christ died for sins. That was his suffering. He died for sins once for all. Christ dying for sins means that sin is missing the mark to be an error. It involves acts which miss God's mark and the nature from which the acts spring. An act of sin does not make one a sinner. Rather, one commits an act of sin because he or she is a sinner. Stealing a phone does not make one a phone thief. Rather, one is a phone thief, which leads to the action of stealing the phone. We don't commit sins because they're going to make us a sinner. We're a sinner, so we commit sins. The penalty is death. In chapter 2, Paul had discussed some of the results. But he says Christ died for sins once for all. Christ, as a perfect sacrifice, in chapter 1 and verse 19, that was mentioned, only had to die once. His once for all death was sufficient for redemption, in chapter 1 and verse 18, and our purification in chapter 1 and verse 22. In his once-for-all death, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. He was a perfect sacrifice. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. The one who was upright, who was innocent, who was just. Dying for the unrighteous. One in whom there is deceit, viciousness, unsoundness. Righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Peter says, as he writes, Christ died for you to bring you to God. To conduct to the presence. To procure Access for. Now stop and think and ponder. A sinner, unrighteous one, is brought to God who is holy, just, and right. Being brought to God means the believer has, according to chapter 1, 3 through 5, an inheritance that will not perish, spoil, or fade away. In one nine salvation. In one eighteen through twenty two redemption. In chapter two four and five 
living, become living stones in chapter 2, 9, and 10, chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. In chapter 2, 24, and 25, there's a healing, and Christ becomes the believer's shepherd. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Christ's suffering, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, brings the repentant, believing sinner to God. Simple question, have you come to him? If not, why not today? Now Peter goes on in verse 18. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Put to death in the body, put to death in the flesh. Christ is a human on earth, human limitations, suffering that was involved, the human body that he had, before death. He was put to death in the body. Now it depends on your translation you're using. The next statement may vary. But made alive by the Spirit. I've done a fair amount of study and research and so on. And I'm not saying I'm right in this. But I'm in the inclination that Peter... You study the text, is not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ in the realm of life that was different. He died in the flesh, but he was raised with a different body, a different form. They could see him, yes. The resurrection of the realm of life, a severe of power and a vindication. Glorified form after his resurrection. Resurrection body being different. That would be, again, my take. And I've read a fair amount of opinions on the passage. He died in the body, flesh. He was made alive. He came alive. He made alive with a different body through whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now the three elements involved in redemption, there's a crucifixion, he was put to death. There's the resurrection, he was made alive. And then there's the reascension when he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And again, I realize there's some other opinions on the passage, but that's where I have landed. Put to death in the body, made alive by the Spirit, came back to life from the dead, different than he died. Through whom? And I think that would be through this body. He went. And preach to the spirits in prison. Now the text doesn't clearly expand on the prison. 
It does say those who obeyed, I'm sorry, disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. Fallen angels or demonic spirits tied in with the events of Genesis 6, 1 through 7 are mentioned there, along with Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2, 4. My take at this point in my study would be that we're dealing with fallen angels, demonic spirits that Jesus would have preached to. But I would see the preaching as I've studied the text and read others would have taken place in connection with Christ's ascension when he led captives in his train, demonstrating his victory through his death and resurrection. In Ephesians 4, 7 through 10 talks about that, which is a quote from Psalm 68. So we have Christ who died. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring believers to God. He was put to death in the physical body. He was raised in a different form, a different body. And it was in this body that he went and preached to the spirits. And my contention would be, as I've studied the text and read people, as he ascended to heaven, he was proclaiming his victory over the spirit world, which is mentioned at the end of verse 22, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And again, that's my take, but don't miss the point. Peter's saying, the Christ you hearers are suffering for is victorious. Be faithful. Continue to do good. Don't get too hung up on, and I'm saying this to us today, don't get too hung up on Christ preaching to the spirits in prison. Get hung up on the fact that Christ and his suffering is victorious. Be faithful, continue to do good. And obviously, the text mentions the flood in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes back baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. The flood was judgment. And it ties in with a warning to the coming future judgment and a disobedient world, according to Matthew 24 and 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7. Now, a couple of comments on the water and so on, and baptism. The water did not save Noah and his family. It was the ark. The water displayed the power and saving value of the ark. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And then he says, this water symbolizes baptism. 
The word symbolizes, which means an antitype, something which stands instead of the real thing. And then he talks about baptism. Baptism in water doesn't save, just as water in Noah's day didn't save. Baptism points, if you please, to the ark, to Christ, who saves or brings one to God. The focus is on the ark in Noah's day. The focus is on Christ in baptism, who saves and brings one to God which was already stated in verse 18. Don't miss Christ. The waters of baptism declare Christ and the pledge of a good conscience toward God. See, the waters of baptism declare Christ and the waters of the flood Manifested the ark. The focal point is Christ. They're suffering. They're going through difficulty. And he says this Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death. He was made alive. He preached to the spirits. The spirits who were involved in Noah's day. But in Noah's day, The ark provided refuge as Christ provides refuge for the people to whom Peter is writing. And then Peter says, this is the pledge of a good conscience toward God. In baptism, one declares his stand with Christ. Or being in the ark declares one stand for God. Peter says, you were baptized. You're declaring your stand with Christ. As Noah and his family, being in the ark, declared their stand with God. The passage is about Christ. Not the flood or baptism. Keep the focus on Christ. Whatever you do, I'll explain what I did with this preaching of the spirits and the ark. Don't miss Christ. That's the focal point. You're suffering. It's Christ who died for your sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death but made alive in the Spirit. And then he went to preach to spirits. And again, I realize there's controversy over the passage, but I think it's pretty clear he's dealing with Christ. See, the resurrection of Christ and then his ascension has gone through the heavens. It means that Christ is at the right hand of God, as stated in verse 22. And angels, authorities, powers are in submission to him. Note the encouragement for Peter's hearers. Yes, you are suffering for your obedience to God as Christ suffered for his obedience to the Father. 
And there may be demonic forces involved in the persecution you're experiencing. But it's Christ who has gone into the heaven and is at God's right hand with these with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So again, I emphasize the passage is primarily about Christ. And you will read some commentators that take a little different angle than I did. I'm not going to part company over that. I'm not going to part fellowship over that. But don't miss Christ. Peter is writing to encourage believers. They're suffering. They're going through difficulty. They're being persecuted. Peter says, you're blessed. It's better to suffer for doing good than for going evil. For doing evil. But it's Christ who died for your sins. It's Christ who died once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Yes, he was put to death, but he was made alive. He went and he preached his spirits, demonstrating again his victory. And it's the resurrected Christ who has gone into heaven with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. The world in which we live, persecution is pretty great for some people. In our country, it's not super difficult. But find encouragement in Christ. Don't miss him by getting hung up on Well, I've got to make sure I have the exact interpretation of Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison long ago and so on. This passage has been around for some 2,000 years. And there's not an agreement exactly how you interpret it. So maybe we won't figure it out, but we won't miss Christ. There's agreement on that. That in the midst of persecution, it's Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we know that Peter's hearers were facing difficulty. Saints here face difficulty today and Even in our own country, we face difficulty at times just because we're living for you, being obedient to you. In the midst of that, may we find encouragement in that Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to you, Father, and that you demonstrated the victory of Christ as he ascended. He's going into heaven, and is at your right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. We want to live in light of that victory, Father. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.